This is the Clinical Pharmacology Podcast with Nathan Tusher, where I discuss clinical pharmacology and pharmacometrics topics from the perspective of drug development scientists. Hi everyone, I'm glad you're listening today. Today's topic is going to be a bit different than previous episodes, and after you listen to the episode, please send me feedback. You can email me, message me on LinkedIn, or send me a message on website. I've included links in the show notes, and I'd love to hear your feedback. One of the most frequent questions I receive is about how to get a job in the clinical pharmacology, DMPK, or pharmacometric space. This same question comes from current students who are looking for their first job after they complete a degree, current scientists who started in a different but related field like clinical operations, and even from individuals who want to transition from clinical pharmacology to pharmacometrics or vice versa. So in today's episode, I'd like to discuss securing employment in clinical pharmacology and pharmacometric space. And I'll start with a few thoughts of my own on finding the right job, and then I'll be joined by a guest expert in connecting scientists and employers in the pharmacometrics, clinical pharmacology, and DMPK areas. I hope you enjoy this episode and are able to find a few new things you can do today to get your next job in this area. So my background in clinical pharmacology and pharmacometrics includes working for five different companies and starting three businesses of my own. In all but one of those companies, I had the opportunity to hire at least one employee. All of that experience has been in the United States of America with some minor experience in hiring in Canada and the United Kingdom. Employment laws are very different for each country, and because of the country-specific differences in these laws, the salaries, the benefits, and opportunities can be different also. So some of the things I suggest or that I discuss with my guest expert will not be applicable in every area of the world. So I appreciate that not all these suggestions and topics will be applicable to every listener. But with that said, let's get started with some of my thoughts on getting a job in the specialty of pharmacometrics or clinical pharmacology. Every company I've worked for, including my own, have been focused on providing something valuable in exchange for monetary compensation. I would even suggest that the academic positions are no different. So when you're looking at potential positions, the first thing you should want to know from the company is, what valuable thing does the company want from me in this position? You could even ask that question to the hiring manager, something like, what is the most important thing you want me to do in this position to help your organization? Then listen to the answer. Once you understand what kind of value they want, you can evaluate if you can provide that value. If it is an academic position and they are looking for someone to bring in millions of dollars per year in grant money, can you do that? Or perhaps they need someone to teach three courses on pharmacometrics topics each year. Can you do that? Do you want to do that? Turning back to industry, maybe they want you to manage clinical pharmacology activities for two compounds in the oncology space. Is that what you want to do? Or maybe they need someone to run in-house population PK models to support a range of early clinical development programs, but they outsource all of their phase three pop PK and exposure response work. Is that okay with you? You want to know what it is that they want for this position. Then you can decide first if you have the expertise required and second, if it is a job that you want to do. Next, authenticity is more important than experience. When you're talking with a prospective employer, be authentic. 
This is probably the hardest thing for most people to do in an interview, regardless of your level of experience. We are going to an interview because we likely want the job. So we want to show the employer how perfect we are for the job that we understand by reading the job description. But sometimes we just try too hard. Authenticity means being true to yourself. If you're asked about your experience in a specific a specific area, answer the question directly. If you have experience, great, tell them about it. If you do not have experience, tell them you don't have a direct experience, but I have some related experience. And then indicate your interest in gaining more experience in that area. For example, if they ask about your experience in conducting population PK analyses and you only have done one analysis as part of a course, to be clear, say, I performed a single pop PK analysis as part of a graduate course. I was able to fit the data to different structural models and we tested three covariates on clearance. I really enjoyed the work and I'm excited to expand my knowledge of the techniques. If I was a hiring manager, I would know two things after hearing that. First, I would know that you don't have a lot of experience with population PK. Second, and more importantly, I would know that you will be upfront about what you know and what you don't know. I won't have to worry about you trying to fake an answer. Compare that to responses like this. Yes, I have experience doing population PK analyses. We did those analyses as part of our graduate program. If I heard that answer and then I started to dig in with more questions, I would quickly find out that you had very little experience. At that point, I would know that you both have little experience, but that you were also unwilling to be authentic in your first response. So when you're authentic, you open yourself up to build confidence and trust with the interviewer. They can see what you know and what you don't know, and your willingness to share is gonna be helpful in the future in the organization. Finally, find a job you enjoy. It may take you several tries to get the job of the type that you really love, and you may need to try a few things out and find out that you don't like to do them. It's okay to change jobs and find something new. As a graduate student, I really enjoyed being a teaching assistant. I like talking with undergraduate students and helping them solve PK problems in the homework. I liked teaching lectures when I had the opportunity to do so, but I did not enjoy the grant application process. My advisor had me help with several grants and I didn't enjoy it at all. So I thought my best option was to choose an industry position instead of academia. I've had several jobs at pharma and biotech companies and contract labs, but I didn't really enjoy those environments. I didn't like the constant focus on a single drug and the next step taking three to 10 years to get an approval. Finally, when I started consulting for clients, I found my home. I rediscovered my love of teaching and sharing with others. I could perform analyses and then share my thoughts with clients and colleagues. I could work on many different drug products each year. I only had to complete one analysis and I could move on to something new. It was fast paced and full of collaboration and learning. Consulting was my perfect place. I didn't know that when I was in graduate school. And perhaps I needed those years in drug companies to gain the necessary experience to be able to understand that that was the place I wanted to be. Either way, I found my favorite job over time. So don't be discouraged if you have to do the same thing. Now I'd like to introduce my guest, TJ Elder, who is president of STEM Sourcing, Recruiting, and Staffing. TJ has worked in the talent acquisition space as a third-party recruiter, as well as an internal recruiter with a focus on clinical pharmacology, DMPK, and pharmacometrics since 2005. 
His agency focuses on full-time hires and small startup companies to large pharmaceutical and biotech companies. Hi, TJ. I'm glad you're willing to join me and share your experience with my audience. Uh, my first question is, what are some recommendations on finding a new job in the clinical pharmacology, DMPK, or pharmacometric space? Hi, Nathan. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, excited to be here. Yeah, so some of the things that you know you want to start doing once you're ready to start looking for a job is to explore some of the associations that you are part of, whether it's ASCPT, ACOP, ISOP, and kind of the handful of other clinical pharmacology. DMPK also includes ISICS. Um, some of those groups you want to start to explore, start to use your network, um, and then you know really start to think about putting together your CV. Um, those are those are really the first steps in starting to look for a job in this area. So are those uh, you know a lot of times you go to the conferences and they have job postings there. Um, is that better than contacts with friends and colleagues that might be in the industry, or is it just as good? What's your thought on that? A lot of it depends. Um, if all of your friends and colleagues happen to be in the same area that you work in, um, definitely reach out to them. Um, many companies have internal uh, referral programs that actually incentivize their employees to refer friends, family that, that would be applicable for jobs on site. So that's a great way to start. And then, you know, as focused and as concentrated as you can get in your areas is where you want to focus your attention. So those groups are comprised mainly of people in your area. So that's where you want to start. Okay. And then what about uh, unsolicited uh, you know, job applications? So, you know, the company website might have a thing that says, hey, give us your information and apply for a job. Is it, is it good to do that? Is it better to work with uh, somebody that's in recruiting like yourself? Or are you have better luck if you actually apply to a job that's posted at a conference, like you said, AAPS or ACOP or one of the others? Well, obviously, I'm biased. <laughs> I'm biased uh, uh, about using recruiters. There's So I'm a little bit biased uh, about using recruiters, being a recruiter myself. Uh, so definitely want to talk to some recruiters. Um, it helps to to talk to a focused recruiter that specifically deals in your area of focus, ClinFarm, Pharmacometrics, DMPK, you know, translational medicine. Um, those, those recruiters know everybody there is to know. They know candidates, they know hiring managers, they know HR people, they know talent acquisition people. So they're a great, great resource. Um, and then, you know, as far as submitting your resume online, you may have some luck there, but being an internal recruiter myself, I was extremely busy. You know, not only was I fielding resumes, uh, CVs uh, for positions, but I also had all sorts of other meetings that I needed to go to. And it was very difficult to keep up with the amount of resumes that were coming in, CVs that were coming in for specific recs. Uh, and sometimes they got lost in the shuffle. So the thing as a recruiter that I tell people is that I cannot guarantee you I can get you a job. I can't guarantee I can get you an interview, but I will guarantee you feedback on anything that we work on together. So at least you'll know one way or another. There's nothing worse than applying for a job uh, that you think you're perfect for. You submit your resume online, and then you just never hear anything back. Yeah, ab absolutely. It's frustrating. Uh, I, I've been in that position, and I agree. That's that's very frustrating. So one of the things you mentioned is, is talked about preparing a, a CV or a resume. What are some of the recommendations you have for people in preparing those so that the hiring manager will you know, pluck 
that CV or resume out and say, that's the person I want, or I want to talk with this person further? What are some of your recommendations? Yeah, I think, um, I think the first thing is to have it up to date. Um, and, and by up to date, I mean having unique experience on there. You don't really want to just kind of cut and paste and change the words around from your last job to your current position. So make sure that that's unique and it, and it f- kind of flows well. Also format. So you don't just want to have a jumble of words. You don't want to have big white spaces on your resume. And this is, this is kind of resume 101 stuff. Um, a lot of people have resumes that they tweak over an entire career. Um, but I don't think there's, in my opinion, no reason to have your picture on your resume. It's unnecessary. Um, and, you know, publications need to be up to date. Make, make sure all of your publications are on there that you feel are applicable for the position. Um, and again, Nathan, I could go on and on. <laughs> but those are, those are kind of the big ones. Yeah, no, that, that is important. And one thing I noticed uh, being a hiring manager is often we'd get a pretty generic CV in that would not highlight any of the relevant experience for the position that we were recruiting for. Um, so was it a clinical pharmacology position and they didn't put anything about, you know, phase one clinical trials or clinical pharmacology work, or alternatively it's a pharmacometrics position and they didn't write anything about modeling and simulation. Um, so I, I, I expect that's probably another part of the CV is to make sure that the you know, when you look at the job posting, make sure that information in your CV is going to match up with that job posting and saying, I can do this or I've done this before, um, however little it is, um, so that they can, you know, want to probe that a little more in an interview. Absolutely. And, and, and also keep in mind, the first eyes on your CV might not be the hiring manager. It might be someone in talent acquisition. Um, and that person in talent acquisition may not know, you know, the mechanistic modeling versus the population PK and, and all the different things that, that can be um, of interest to the hiring manager. They just kind of want to stick to what's in the job description. So, so just be, I, I guess, be mindful of that. Being in that position myself, I was recruiting for a position in external manufacturing. And I didn't really know what I was looking for, um, but they told me to work on that job. So that's the job I worked on. So I think I think what you're saying is 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 spot on. The next question is sort of the next step. So you found a posting, you've you've given a CV or applied for the job, and hopefully now uh, they've called and asked for an interview. And over the past few years, I've noticed a, a big shift from on-site interviews to virtual interviews using Zoom or Teams or any number of. Uh, you know, virtual platforms. What are some recommendations you have about preparing for and then performing well in these virtual interviews? So I think you need to prepare for a Zoom interview similar to what you would repair, prepare for an onsite. Um, and and it, a lot of it has to do with your equipment. You know, you want to test out microphones. You want to test out video. You want to make sure, you know, if, if you have a blurred background or you don't have a blurred background, you know, check in with your um, scheduling person or human resources person who's ever scheduling your interview to make sure that the mechanics are where they need to be in order for you to feel comfortable and kind of perform your best. So the technical aspects are are kind of a big deal. Um, That's definitely what I would start to look into as a first step prior to even getting into the content aspect of interviewing. Okay. And then what about the the content and, and how you handle it and some of the things you've seen, uh, you know, candidates be exposed to as well as, uh, you know, how they, they were maybe unprepared for. So here's the big, the big part of 
the interview. You've passed the, the initial phone screen. You know, they call that a phone screen to try and screen out candidates. Um, now they've invited you in, you know, uh, and you want to be prepared. So the thing that I send my candidates is I will I won't I will send a link to Biospace with just a keyword for all the news about that company. You know, the earnings they've reported, if they're public, um, any um, indications that they've recently been awarded, any uh, phase one, any any news that they've gotten from the FDA, um, any NDAs they filed, any of that stuff, any of that news you need to consume. You need to consume that information and find out. Um, same thing with the hiring manager, sending a link to the hiring manager, sending links to all the people you're interviewing with. Look all of them up. Find out where they've worked. You know, you don't need to take copious notes, but, it, you know, you might know someone in common. And that's important um, because the main thing that I tell my candidates is you want to feel special. I want to feel special. And the people that you talk to on the other side of the camera want to feel special. Um, and the way that you do that is by doing a little bit of homework and, and showing them that you actually care about the company, the person you're speaking to and the position that you're interviewing for. Great. Now, what's your thoughts about questions that the candidate might have for the people they're interviewing with? And, and so, I mean, I have a few thoughts on this, but, but how do you help candidates prepare for that? I always say, you know, be prepared to tell a story. Be prepared to tell a, a story about a time where you were successful. But more importantly, people want to hear about the time where you weren't successful. You know, talk about a time where you just couldn't solve a problem. Talk about a time where you ran into this roadblock and you realize, like, there's no solution. This is something that we just have to manage um, and how you moved forward from that. Uh, you know, those types of stories are what people really want to hear. You know, it's great that every, you know, you, you can come off sounding perfect. But, you know, the idea of the interview is that they want to be able to, to work with someone, identify with someone, uh, succeed with someone. And then if they have to, unfortunately, fail with that person. Yeah, that's a great suggestion. I had a, a good friend of mine who always said, uh, we don't pay you to find problems. Anybody can find the problem. <laughs> we pay you to solve the problems. So, um, you know, I, I agree. Understanding when you have had difficulty and how you resolve that is much more important than, you know, the success necessarily. You know, one thing I've always, uh, the, the people that I've hired that I've in, you know, part of the reason I've hired them is that they wanted to know more about the job when they were there on the interview. So they asked really good questions about what do you want me to do in this position? What are some of the activities that you want me to, to succeed at? Or, or, you know, question like, you know, in six months, if you hire me, what would you be, what would you consider successful? What would I be doing that you'd be considering successful? I always found that questions like that to me when I'm interviewing people are are valuable to the candidate and to me. Number one, they're willing to listen and they're willing to take direction because they're actually asking for it. Uh, the other part of it is I think they learn a lot about the position and they don't have to be talking all the time. They can listen and go, oh, they want me to do this. I've done some of that or I haven't done some of that. And then they can respond appropriately. And so you get this authentic back and forth about understanding where someone is and where the 
the hiring manager or the interviewer wants them to be. And you also learn if you interview with five different people and they tell you they want five different things in this position, that might be a red flag that maybe you don't want that position uh, at that company that, you know, you might have multiple different people pulling in different ways and maybe you're not comfortable with that. So I've always thought that was a, a good thing to ask when you're interviewing for a new job is what do you what are, what are your expectations for a person in this position? You know, what is successful from your point of view? And then sit and listen. And it can be very informative about learning as a candidate versus having to answer questions. Yeah, you, you, you really can't ask enough questions. Another question that I like is, you know, hey, Nathan, or hey, Mr. Mrs. Hiring Manager, what got you excited about working at this company? Like, what made you leave your old company to come and work for this one? You know, and and the answer should should really be eye opening to um, to the interview e interviewer the the, the job the job yep. applicant always a good one yeah exactly awesome the other part of this is what's the average duration of these virtual interviews that you've seen and what has worked well for some candidates and what hasn't worked well for candidates in the the length of these virtual interviews. Yeah. So typically it, you know, I guess typically the types of roles that I'm working on, it's senior director, director level ish positions. It's usually one day, maybe two. And then maybe, um, you know, if it's a one day, then some follow ups with some people who either can't make it or, or just some senior level uh, individuals. Um, you know, it's it's so much more efficient than it used to be. And there's less variables for um, travel issues, weather issues, things like that. Um, they're, they're just so much more efficient than they used to be. So um, the entire life or the entire, uh, I guess, life cycle of, of finding a position has been accelerated due to this, um, due to the uh, WebEx or, uh, or Zoom interviews. Gotcha. So are you, are you saying most candidates are eight hours for eight hours? They're on a video interview or do they do maybe two to four hours, take a break and then two, two to four more hours in the afternoon? What are, what's sort so of a lot of it? A lot of it depends on the company. Um, a lot of uh, a lot of it depends on how traditional they want to make it. Um, but I've seen anything from eight to four. So a solid eight hours with a, maybe a break in the middle and, and maybe some small bio breaks uh, along the way. And I've seen um, I've seen it broken up throughout a week where it's two, three hours one day, a call, one call one day, one call another day, and then finish up with two, three hours uh, at the end of the week. But you should be prepared for a full day. Um, you should be prepared for these calls to run long. And, and as usual, you should be prepared for people to get called away uh, if something comes up. But definitely, definitely want to allocate a, a solid amount of time for these uh, for these uh, interviews. And, and that's sometimes a challenge, right? Because you're at home and, and you might have, you know, kids coming in the room or, you know, all sorts of other things happening. And yeah, uh, and but if you can allocate your time and separate it and find other options, that's probably better. Um, alternatively, I, I think you can always give feedback to the, the human resources or the scheduler and say, hey, you know, I really need to be done by this time because I have a, a family thing at six o'clock at night for me and, and I, I really need to stop. Could we finish, you know, 10 minutes early? Yeah. So. Yep. And I, and I think I think these days people seem to be much more understanding of those types of obligations, um, which is uh, which is nice. Yep. OK, so the, the next question is um, about compensation. 
Um, this is a really important part of any job offer. And sometimes um, it brings a lot of anxiety and stress to the relationship between the candidate and, you know, the, the company hiring manager. Um, so what suggestions do you have first for candidates, but then second for hiring managers to talk about compensation negotiations? What are some of your, you know, things you should do and maybe some things you shouldn't do? So we could have an entire podcast, I think, about this this one question, uh, and I will try not to uh, geek out too much about it, but this is where it is very nice to have a recruiter. Uh, the recruiter is your shield for if you do happen to say something uh, that might not be the best thing to say, you say it to a recruiter like myself, uh, and then that doesn't get said to the hiring manager. But, you know, you've made it through the interview. Uh, a lot of times human resources will say, hello, Mrs. Candidate. How much would you like to make? You know, uh, and the correct answer to that is is pretty simple. You know, hello, uh, Mr. HR person. Uh, I, I would expect an, a competitive offer. I'd be excited about a competitive offer, uh, and I would certainly consider anything that would be market value for someone with my experience and expertise. And then the human resources person says, "Well, well, what would that number look like?" And you simply say, you know, market value for someone in my experience with my experience, I'd be excited to uh, to consider any reasonable offer. And typically they won't ask again after that after that point, they kind of realize you're not going to answer the question. And the reason you answer it that way is because if you answer too high, you sound greedy. And if you answer too low, then you're doing yourself a disservice. You're shortchanging yourself. So there's no way to answer that question. Um, and somebody along the way once told me that in a negotiation, whoever gives out the first number typically loses. Um, and that's kind of how I operate. And that's what I've found success in is kind of shielding my candidates from, from that difficult question and then handling it after the interview goes well. If the interview doesn't go well, the question is moot. Yeah. So uh, another way I've, I, I know that uh, HR people ask that question is, what's your current salary? And, and so instead of saying, what do you want to make? They say, what's your current salary? What would you recommend a response for that to be? Typically, again, if you're using a recruiter, that information has already been conveyed. Um, also, Nathan, these days, many states have outlawed that question. Uh, it is illegal uh, for companies to ask current compensation of candidates in in a number of states. Which ones uh, specifically, I'm not sure. There's, there's quite a few, and especially in the, the major hubs of our industry. So a lot of times they'll say, well, what are your salary expectations? Um, and again, you know, you find a way to sidestep that, that, that question, uh, and then we'll take care of it after, after the fact. If they want to make an offer, then work with your recruiter um, to, to, to have that company put together an exciting offer for that candidate. That's great. Okay, so first, don't, yeah, don't put the first number out there. I think that's your first recommendation. What's, your, what's another recommendation about these uh, compensation negotiations? So, Again, so many things are company dependent, but different companies offer different types of packages. Some companies offer restricted stock units, some, some offer stock options, some offer a mix of those things. They have different vesting schedules. Um, so, so the stock, if it is a public company or even private company, uh, is one component. Another component is any types of um, uh, retirement benefits, long-term uh, incentives. You want to talk about that. You want to talk about your bonus. Um, 
Typically, uh, there are differences in associate director, director, senior director, vice president, levels of bonuses. Uh, you want to talk about a sign-on bonus? Are you giving up your current year's bonus by leaving your company? What's that going to look like? Is your next uh, is your next position going to have a prorated bonus? Um, you know, let's talk about vacation. We can talk about so many. There's there's half a dozen, uh, ten uh, different components of salary. So all of those things need to be fleshed out prior to getting into talking about uh, an offer. Great. And so let's say now they, the company's given an offer to the candidate. Um, uh, what's the next step? So um, what should the candidate do after they have all that information about the offer, the, the salary, maybe sign-on bonus, um, you know, long-term incentives, annual incentives, benefits package. So they have all that information and it's the first offer that's come from the company. What's, you know, how do you handle that with the people that you work with? What, what's the sort of next steps there? Um, I also forgot to mention relocation. So if, if there's relocation involved, I mean, that's another component. Um, but the steps are, you know, the idea is I'm always checking in with my candidates all along the way to see if this is a company that they can see themselves working at. You know, uh, the last thing I want to do is work with a, a, a candidate that is using an offer as leverage to get a counter offer at their own company. So we'll, we'll put that aside. That's talk about my feelings on that later. <laughs> uh, okay. um, but, you know, you, you want to consider if this is a company you see yourself working at. So I'm always checking with my candidates after the phone screen, after the interview. Um, you know, is this a company that if they put together an exciting offer, is this a company you see yourself working at? So. We want to make sure that's in place. And then throughout throughout our back and forth in our communication, we're talking about salary and we're talking about stock being left on the table. We're talking about bonuses being left on the table or not. And we're seeing what is going to be exciting. So after an offer has come out, the idea is that that offer comes out already in an exciting place for my candidate. I've talked to my candidate all along the way about what would be an exciting offer. Is this an exciting company? Um, you know, so I, I want to make sure that the first offer is something that's exciting. Um, so I'm working with not only my candidate, but also human resources or talent acquisition on the other side on the, on our client side to make sure that they're excited about the candidate. They're excited to put together an offer that's acceptable. And so it's a fine balance to make sure that everyone is happy. We want to make sure our clients are happy with the, uh, types of offers that they're extending and that they're in line with what the market is paying. And then we want to make sure that the expectations on our candidates part are in line with market value. Um, so, so again, I, I can't stress kind of how important it is to work with a recruiter that has uh, experience constantly making placements in their area of focus, ClinPharm, Pharmacometrics, Quantitative Pharmacology, uh, and DMPK. Yeah, that's great. And um, yeah, from the hiring manager side, one of the things I I always did with my human resources person is I would say, Hey, I want to target a salary that is at the median of the range for this position. Um, and we had some flexibility to go above and below that median, um, you know, based on whatever conditions and the candidate specifically. But, but I, I like that approach from my side in the business because when they were hired in, they're right at the middle of their range. So if they do really well, I had room to add salary without having to do a promotion. Um, and I felt like the median means, hey, we're paying you 
more than half the people in this in this area. So I felt like it was a good place to be for a candidate. It sometimes we'd have a candidate that really wanted to push the salary, so they ended up at you know maybe the 80th percentile or even 90th percentile for that position. It put us in a tough spot one or two years down the road because now we couldn't give them a salary increase because they had to stay within the band um, and there's no room for them to move. So maybe they weren't ready for a promotion yet, and uh, but we couldn't give them a salary increase and so they got stuck. And so um, you know, from the hiring manager side, usually you're trying to target, I think most places, the median salary in the region where you're working. And by region, it's usually you know, North America or Western Europe or Asia or wherever it might be. So is that your experience as well? Yeah. And, and I think a, a lot of the times, um, and, and I guess, especially in the last five years, um, the salaries of my candidates and the salaries in Clint Farm, Pharmacometrics in, the, in, in these areas has gone up like everything else. And I think sometimes it takes a little education on my part when working with candidates or working with clients is to kind of say, this is, this is what we're seeing. And, you know, our clients uh, may have some data that's outdated because it's a year old, you know, or it's nine months old and it's, it's outdated because that's the way things are moving now. It's so much, so much more expensive for everything. I mean, even had my shower retiled recently and that was $2,000 more than it was supposed to be. Everything is going up. Yep. And that's a good point is an advantage of working with a recruiter gives you more current information for both sides of the equation, the candidate as well as the company. I experienced that in that rapid rise. We had data that was a year old and we were having trouble hiring candidates because it was too low of an offer. And we realized that the the year old data was no longer relevant. So we had to rely on the recruiters for saying, hey, I, I hired somebody out, similar position. This was a salary that was given. Um, or, or this is the range it was given. So that's, that's a great point. Yeah. And, and, and I also think you need to be cognizant of, of where these people are working. Um, and again, I guess I, I hate to, to constantly talk about the importance of a recruiter, but we have the knowledge of different, uh, geographies and, and what's being paid there. And then at the same time, companies either recognize that or they don't. Some companies want to keep it even throughout the band, throughout, throughout the country. Uh, some companies recognize that some geos are more expensive than others. Uh, and so they may pay someone less if they work in the Midwest than they would in a San Francisco. Um, so again, it, this is all due diligence, I think, on the candidates part is to, is to try and really figure out, you know, the company specifically that they're interviewing for, you know, how do they plan on compensating um, their individuals, their, their workforce? Something from my perspective, I think people shouldn't be afraid to talk about compensation. This is a part of the equation. You're trading your you know, effort and your work for compensation. And if you don't feel that it's, it's adequate um, or that it's, it's a, an accurate reflection of the value you're bringing, it's okay to say that. And it's okay to give a number that you think is you know, more reflective of what you have. Now, just because you feel that you should make more doesn't mean that someone's willing to pay that. Um, and that, that, that has to be understood, but I, it's better to talk about it than not talk about it and let your frustration simmer. Um, so like you said, I think it's great to have a recruiter for a candidate. They can bounce the ideas off and they can talk about it. And a recruiter can say, yeah, 
You know, you're really not going to make that much money in this role. Nobody makes that much money in this role. And and they can say that to a candidate without necessarily offending them. Um, but they can also talk to the company that the recruiter can talk to the company and say, yeah, there's no way you're going to get this candidate for that price because there's four other companies that would offer more than that. And so, you know, you really need to raise your offer if uh, that might be your median and your data, but there's no way you're going to get a candidate like this. So um, that that I, wanna, I don't want to say a recruiter is a middle middle man or middle woman, but they really are. They're in between and they can hear both sides of the story and then they can share information to make make the, the partnership happen. Yeah, um, exactly. And, and, and all of it's based on trust, you know, so. You should be able to trust the person on the other end of the phone or the under, under, other end of the camera um, to do what's in your best interest because it's in our best interest of our clients to hire skilled, talented scientists. And it's you know, in candidates' best interest to work for a company that's going to thrive and, and do well for their career. And all along the way, it's just sharing of information and honest, uh, honest uh, upfront information. Excellent. Okay, so uh, my my last question um, is about accepting an employment offer, and actually, there's multiple questions. So I'll kind of ask multiple questions together. First, what do you think about counter offers? I know you mentioned that earlier. What's the best way to give notice to your current employer that you might be leaving, and how much time should you give it when you give that notice? And then, what should you tell the employer about you know the new position, maybe why you're leaving, that kind of information? What's what's relevant to share? So, some of this depends on the company. Some of this depends on the individual. Uh, so, so we'll we'll talk about that. Um, but I, I I think counter offers are bad business. I think they are. Um, I think they're a bad idea in general. I say that because. Um, you shouldn't leverage uh, an offer from a company that's that's kind of going out of their way to to bring you into their company to leverage that to stay at your current company. If you want a raise, go ask for a raise. Um, a counteroffer wastes a lot of time. It wastes uh, not only uh, the hiring manager's time, but the entire team of that company. You know, you're getting signatures, you're getting um, schedulers, human resources. All of these people are putting together a lot of work to put together an offer that you're going to use to try and leverage to get a, a, a higher uh, a higher salary from your current employer. At, at the same time, if your current employer does happen to keep you on board, they know that it's just a matter of time before you want to leave again um, because they, they know that you've done it once. Uh, they know that you've been relatively dishonest in trying to get a raise instead of just asking for it. So they're probably looking for your replacement um, in the next six months. You know, the, the money does not go, a higher salary is not going to make you happier. You may think it will, but it won't last. Yeah, no, I think that's a great, um, I, I think counteroffers, like you said, burn two bridges. It burns the bridge with the, the company that you interviewed with and almost everyone that you interacted with. And it, it burns the bridge with your current company. Yeah. Um, I, I've seen it happen multiple times. And so you're right, it, it may get you an initial increase, but long term, it's it's generally not good for yeah, you. Yeah, it's 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 still a company you don't want to work for, essentially, because you've you've gone out gone to this painstakingly uh, time consuming process of of getting an offer elsewhere. Yeah, not a fan, Nathan. Not a fan. Okay, you've decided to leave. What's next? How do you give notice? How long do you give? And I, I guarantee they're going to give you a counter offer potentially, or they're going to want to know why you're leaving and want to know all this information. What should you say? 
So um, what you should say is a resignation letter. Basically, the company that you've interviewed for, that you're excited about, you know, has given you an offer. They've probably given you uh, um, or, or you've decided on a start date. So that start date might be in two weeks. It might be in a month. It might be in three months. I had a, a candidate from overseas uh, that needed to get a visa. Um, actually, it was a German national living in um, England that took a job in New York that took over a year to start. Um, but my point is, uh, really no more than 30 days if, if, if you can avoid it, unless you've got vacation or there's some extenuating circumstances. Um, you've made a commitment to this new company. You know, it's, you've moved on from this old company. Um, so two weeks minimum, uh, you know, 30 days maximum, you will be replaced. Okay. You know, they're going to ask, uh, HR is going to have an exit interview. Um, your manager, your current manager might want to talk with you and say, why are you leaving? And they might ask questions like, what could we do better? Or, you know, what would you like to see? What are your recommendations for a candidate to respond to those questions when they're leaving a company? I would say keep it as generic as possible, you know, or if it is a specific thing that made you leave, if you're if you were having an interpersonal issue with a supervisor or an interpersonal issue with someone on site and you feel that will benefit the company by letting them know that, be honest. Um, otherwise, keep it generic and say, you know what, I didn't see room for advancement or I couldn't see myself working here in five years or, or, or something. If you feel like you just need to to go through the motions, keep it generic. Yep. Great, great advice. Um, and do you have to tell your current company where you will be going, what your new job is and what the new company is? Is, is that a requirement or can you just say, you know, I'm, I'm, I don't want to share? Uh, you can say whatever you want, <laughs> you know, um, okay. you know, if you've got a great relationship with your, with your, with your employer and, um, it was just time to move on, then feel free to let them know. If, if for some reason you don't want to let them know, don't let them know. Um, but most likely you'll update your LinkedIn page and, and then they'll find out where you went after you, you've started. Um, but it's completely up to you. You know, you've gone out, you've gotten that offer. It's exciting. You're ready to move on. Um, you, you you can tell them whatever you'd like. Awesome. Well, TJ, thank you so much for uh, uh, spending time and answering questions. Um, I know that the audience will will really benefit from this. So the final question is, uh, if people want to talk more with you or connect with you, uh, how can they uh, reach out to you and get in touch with you? Yeah, I mean, you can, I, I pretty much live on LinkedIn, so you can find me there. You can, I think, Google my name, TJ Elder, and my information should come up. I also believe there's a TJ Elder Middle School somewhere outside of Atlanta in Georgia. That's not me, but you can find me on LinkedIn. It's pretty easy. Okay, great. And we'll put some links in the show notes as well so that they can, they can connect to your LinkedIn page. So again, thank you so much for your time and have a wonderful day. Awesome, Nathan. Thank you so much for having me. That'll wrap things up for today's podcast. I hope you uh, learned something about getting a job in clinical pharmacology or pharmacometrics. And again, a huge thank you to TJ for uh speaking with us and sharing his expertise and his knowledge. If you want to get in touch with him, please reach out to him on LinkedIn and he'd be happy to help you. So uh, good luck in finding your next job and finding your perfect place. 
For more information, please connect with me on LinkedIn, send me an email to nathan at tushersolutions.com or sign up for my newsletter at tushersolutions.com forward slash newsletter. The newsletter is a copy of the show notes sent to your email each time an episode is released. Also, please subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to the show. Thank you. Thank you.